This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Leadership DNA. Why the accepted premise that anyone can be a leader is utterly false and the main cause of poor leadership in America. And the author is Paul Oakham. And Paul joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Paul. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Well, your title says it all. The accepted premise that anyone can be a leader is utterly false. You take issue with all these gurus running all over the world telling uh, everyone they can become a leader, but just buy my program and you can become a leader, right? That's exactly right. That's, <laughs> that's the problem. It's big business. And it's big business. If you go out and go out on the Internet and you'll see hundreds of leadership books, they just seem to be rolling off the assembly line all the time. And it's basically, as you said, it's one author or one guru after another saying they found the magic formula, the elixir of leadership, and says, here it is. You just take the swallow this amount, uh, and, and whatever we say here, if you follow those formulas, then you will be a successful leader. And that's our problem, is, is that it isn't that simple. Well, before we get into why it isn't that simple, Paul, tell us about yourself. Give us your background and why you decided to write the book. Okay. Uh, started off as, uh, went to Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, have a bachelor's in business administration, and went into the ROTC, Army officer, uh, for, for a period of time, and then when I got out, I started to work for the federal government, uh, in the Department of Transportation, Department of Interior, Department of Army, and then I ended up in the Department of Defense, and I was a human re- human relations director for 23 years for an organization inside the Department of Defense. So during that time, obviously, you talked to a lot of folks looking for a position. You were able to analyze uh, people's progress in different uh, positions, and you've come up with this very, what you believe, and it makes a whole lot of sense, you believe that this notion that anybody can become a leader is false, but there is something about leadership. There is, there are some key things about leadership. That's correct. That's correct. I think that as a, especially uh, as a human resource director, what it did was give me exposure to all different levels of supervisors uh, in an organization, variety of organizations from team leads of small teams, all the way up to large divisions with hundreds of people in it. My own organization had 105 in it that reported directly to me. So it was, it was, it was like a laboratory right there. You know, it was like, okay, here's all these different styles of leaders and managers and, and, and here's the complaints that are coming in. Here's employee concerns, you know, that are shared with the personnel department. And it's basically, okay, you can start to see when you work in the trenches with these theories that these gurus come up with that it wasn't working that we had a lot of people well-meaning in leadership positions 
that weren't functioning as leaders. Well, let's start right at the bottom line, right at the beginning of your book. Uh, let's define leadership and then answer the question, is it science or art? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a good play because I think that's really where this thing fundamentally starts at. Uh, if you if you read the gurus and and the authors of leadership books, basically what it comes down to is three variables. It says you first have to have a personal desire to be a leader. The second thing is you got to be willing to work hard to to put that leadership skills in place. And the third thing is you have to have training in leadership. And this is where the guru, the first two are pretty much standard throughout all the leadership books. The third one, the training, is where these gurus come up with their own particular formulas then. And then where do they get those formulas? They basically say, well, look, we're going to analyze what we consider good leaders that have, that have existed in the past and in the present and basically try to distill out of that Okay, this is the, these are the characteristics. These are the this is, these are the things that make a successful leader. So if we can just define those and put them into some kind of list form or formula form or recipe form, then that's what we will teach. And if you if you if you have the personal desire plus the the the, the you're willing to put in work hard at it and take our training. The, the, the particular brand that we're giving you, then then you will be successful. And there's no recognition of whether talent comes in play or nothing. It basically is those three variables. Is that personal desire plus hard work plus training equals good leadership. And that's where it's flawed. It's it, because what ends up happening is is we've totally overlooked the the talent piece. And I use an example. Uh, I've used a variety of different examples, but with the Olympics just recently here uh, that we've gone to experience with, we'll use that one. There had to have been thousands of people that tried out uh, to be on our Olympic to, rep uh, to represent the United States at the Olympics, thousands in all the different uh, categories. And while some people may have had enough talent to, to win local contests and, and competitions, some may be able to move up into regional. Some may be able to pass state uh, competitions and keep rising up, so to speak, as the cream would move towards the top. Then basically what ends up happening is you finally come down to that group of people who have enough talent that we believe can represent the United States uh, in Olympics. It doesn't mean that all the people that didn't make it didn't have any talent. It meant that they didn't have enough Right. to be able to progress to each of the additional higher levels of competition. Right. So, so basically, you know, right away, intuitively, you can tell, well, wait a minute, then, 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 lead, then leadership and talent, you have to have a fourth variable. The fourth variable has to be you've got to have some type, some level of talent in leadership or anything else that you do in life in order to be good and successful at it. The training can enhance what talent you have, but it can't put you in. You can't put talent in you. Right. Okay. And of course you need the desire to do it and a willingness to work hard. So all of those then come together and everything then starts to make sense. Once we say, and, it, and are willing to admit there, you need the fourth variable of talent. So that's what you call your DNA talent bank account. Correct. Correct.
Correct. If you, you know, whether it's God-given or whether you get it from your parents, we're each born with a unique set of talents. I mean, that's it. And attributes. For example, you know, some people will grow to six, six feet, seven inches. Other people stop at 5.5. You know, that's that you can't teach height. You know, so you're born with that attribute either. And, you know, so if, if the 5.5 guy wants to say, well, I want to become a basketball player in the, in the NBA, well, you know, there may be a slim possibility of that, but over time, that isn't a realistic uh, endeavor for that particular person. They're just, you know, that, that, that is not going to work regardless of how your ball control or anything else. So how do you propose to identify and select natural-born leaders? Well, first of all, you have to, as you, as you, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, you have to recognize that there's le- that, that this talent, DNA talent bank account that you have. So if, in fact, you have, and let's just say that, that we'll, just, we'll just take for discussion purposes that it goes from 1 to 10. Because if you have zero, if you don't have any talent at all, okay, well, then that's not going to show up at all in your talent bank account. But if you, if you, let's say you have a three and the particular position that you're, that you want to be in, uh, requires a five. The problem with the, with the, with, with helping people and trying to identify this as to whether or not you have leadership ability is the, the talent bank account doesn't come with any statements. There's no statement, electronic statement that says, well, this is how much talent you have in your bank account. So don't go and overexpend it because if you do, then the check that you write on this new job that you're going to and you give it to the next higher level supervisor is going to bounce. If you, if it requires a level four and you only have a level two, then basically your check's going to bounce and you're not going to be an effective leader. And we, we lose sight of this all the time. And so we want to try, because let's say, for example, you find somebody who's over a team lead. The team has three people on it, and this is a, a team lead, and this person's functioning pretty well. Okay, well, because you can function well as a team lead over three people doesn't mean that you're going to be able to function as, as a division chief over 100 people. Okay, the talent request, the needs of that talent uh, that you have to show is going to go up exponentially. So the question becomes then do I have enough talent to go in and do I can I jump from a team lead position up to a division chief position from 3 people to 100 people. That's the that's what we that's what we're trying to get to. That's what we're trying to measure to say is okay, how do we help people make that determination? Baseball has the example as far as I'm concerned. They have, they have talent scouts, baseball talent scouts that go around and basically try to determine whether or not these kids coming up through college, uh, or working or, or playing ball in a foreign country, okay, especially down in the, uh, the, like the Dominican Republic where we get a lot of our ball players from as to whether or not, uh, these people have enough, enough talent to make it to the major leagues. And so, so baseball to me serves as an example for us, for any, any government, any government office or business or anything else to say, okay, well, how do we want to identify these natural born leaders? Well, we need to have talent scouts, leadership talent scouts that their job is, uh, because of their gifts that they have, that they need, they should be able to sit down and, and 
do make some type of determination because basically it takes one to know one. It takes right. a, good a good leader good point. to know one. Good point. And leadership is much more than a popularity contest. And our government seems to be filled with a popularity contest and not leadership. That's exactly right. Excellent point. I think that that's what ends up happening is, is that, the, you know, the people who make it, that, that move up the line then in, in our politics aren't necessarily people that are saying, okay, well, I was, I was okay uh, doing this small job in the county, and now, and now I want to run for this position. And, and, so and they're the a good speaker. They're, been, great, they're great in front of an audience. That's exact. Yes, exactly. Yeah, they're, they're, they're good speech givers, and they're good in front of an audience, uh, or they have name recognition, and typically that's the big thing right. that we vote on is right. name recognition. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter, you know, about or, the quality of the individual. Or if I have a lot of money, it must mean that I can do about anything. That's exact. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. We seem to do. We seem to uh, certainly uh, take wealthy people and hold them at a higher level of esteem. Uh, and that doesn't. That they may have gotten it because their parents were the ones that put in all the hard work, and they inherited the business. I mean, it doesn't. And we're not. We're not really looking at a lot of those things when we try to make a determination. But, but, but that. But your original point is well taken. You know, you the, these people are moving up, not necessarily because of the 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 amount of talent that they have in their DNA talent bank account. It could be from external uh, sources. And as a result, we're getting people in these positions that shouldn't be. Well, in your book, you talk about the challenges of a new leader, that challenge to be uh, really great at delegating, communicating, coaching. I mean, leadership is, uh, is a huge responsibility, and you're the point man. Boy, you take all the heat, and not everybody, not obviously very few can really be effective at being the point man. That's true. Yeah, that's true. If we could all be effective, this we wouldn't even be sitting and having this conversation that's right. because we would have people in these positions who need to be there. Instead, we have the intolerable boss, is what I call them. It's basically, you know, and you could tell because Sunday the, the weekend's just about over, and you're already starting to regret the fact that you got to go to work tomorrow uh, on Monday because they're your, the number one cause of frustration, stress employee turnover, loss production, all of that is because of intolerable, intolerable bosses who just make it a nightmare and misery uh, to come to work for them. And so, uh, and yet upper level management does little or nothing about it uh, because usually they put all their time and effort into the selection process and next to none you know, into the follow-up process to say, in fact, is this person actually performing? Did we make a good selection here? And you just don't see a lot of that going on. Uh, and, and, and I understand the natural inclination is, is that you don't want to admit uh, as a top-level supervisor or leader that you made a mistake hiring somebody. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, uh, you'd much rather move them to greener pastures. Well, maybe they'll be better over here with this particular, or let's reorganize. Instead of having them as a division chief, let's bring it down to a branch, and we'll put this person, we'll kind of tuck them away. Uh, and you'll see an awful lot of that going on, uh, very little of dealing with poor poor leaders. Now, you can be an expert in your field, really understand the mechanics of every aspect uh, of the job, but that doesn't make you a leader. Correct. 
That's exactly right. It makes you a manager. And managers are everywhere. Leaders are few and far between. Any, 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 anytime you look at any field of human endeavor, it's only the very, you know, the very top that make it to the, to where they are that had enough talent to make it there. Right. It's not everybody has that, you know, so, so it's just one of those things. It's reality, not just because you can lead a team of two or three people doesn't mean that you can represent us at the Senate, in the Senate, uh, or in the House of Representatives. It, it just, it doesn't compute, you know. Paul, we have about a minute left for a closing comment. Would you please just close with talking about a career choice? Let's start teaching our kids career choices about leadership and identifying them. I think that's probably the biggest lack that we have in our in our education system, that there's so much opportunity for people uh, today to choose the different occupations, but the, if there's no laboratory, there's no classroom environment that's created to give them exposure to these variety of careers, including leadership. And leadership, to me, you know, is the number one thing, because if you have it, if a country has it, if a corporation has it, if a school board has it, uh, then everything seems to fall in place. If you don't have it, then everything seems to be in turmoil, confusion. uh, And and so we want it should make sense that the people that have the ability to influence the country and the outcomes the most, which are its leaders, we should be taking some time to develop them and give people an opportunity to experiment in leadership positions to see if it is in fact for them. Because regardless of all the formulas that gurus can come up with, the only real way of knowing whether somebody can be a good leader is by immersing them in the pool of leadership and saying swim and and see what they can do with it. Because you have to be exposed to the stresses and challenges of leadership before you can say, well, this person is going to be a good leader or they're not going to be a good leader. I mean, you can take all of that and push it aside. So if we can, in our our education system, if we can get kids to have an opportunity to experiment in the different things that they think are their unique skill sets, then we have a better chance of getting people into positions uh, in their careers that basically lines up with their skills and their talents, which will make them infinitely happier, more content, and more productive. Very well put, Paul. All I can say to everything you have said is amen. (laughs) So, Paul, tell us (laughs) how to get your book, Leadership DNA. How do we get it? Uh, It's on Amazon.com. It's uh, BarnesandNoble.com, BarrettKohler.com. Any any of your favorite dot-coms out there, uh, publishers, booksellers, uh, should have it. Paul Oakum, that's spelled O-K-U-M. He is the author of Leadership DNA. Thank you so much, Paul, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. And thank you very much for having me on. I really do appreciate it. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station.
Yes, why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel. The inspiration for the movie, Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection. With host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things. And are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Ideological Bigotry, a political conservative and morally liberal Hebrew alpha male hunts left-wing vipers and sucks the political poison from their blank, redacted, of course, uh, or or beep. And Eric, as he goes by Eric, a.k.a. the Tiger Express, joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Eric. Great to be with you, sir. Well, great to have you with us. That title is uh, fills up the whole front cover of your book. Well, you know, I have a lot to say, but unlike President Obama, what, my words are actually worth hearing. How did you get so fired up, Eric? Well, the fact of the matter is, is that I've come to the conclusion that I, I did research as to why the left hates the right, and they do hate our guts. It's because we exist and we breathe air. You know, I always tell people, take the word Jewish, replace it with the word Republican, or better yet, conservative. Take the words Hamas and Hezbollah, replace it with liberal Democrat. The left are verbal suicide bombers, except less warm and fuzzy. And if you're a minority (laughs) conservative, such as, you know, a Clarence Thomas or a Sarah Palin or a Michelle Bachman or an Eric Cantor, they'll try to destroy you. And the left will try to rip people to shreds if they believe in radical Christian notions such as love thy neighbor. So how long have you been doing this, Eric? I've been on the speaking circuit now for about three years full time, and I've spoken in 44 states which means I've got six more to go, or 13 if I'm President Obama, and my goal is to end ideological bigotry in this country. Ideological bigotry, boy, it's alive and well, isn't it? Well, what we can't get the left to understand is that the right does not hate the left. I have nothing personal against President Obama. He's a good husband and a good father. And because he's such a good family man, I want to do whatever I can to help him have more time to spend with his lovely family as a private citizen in Illinois. I disagree with his policies. The difference is is that the left despises the right. They hate us. They want to grind us into dust. They're nothing but bullies, and the only thing bullies understand is force, and I'm a battering ram. Why are they like that? 
I think a lot of it is because this is a center-right country, and they can't accept the fact that most Americans don't agree with them. So they just get more hostile, more bitter, more enraged, and they think that if they yell and scream at the top of their lungs that the American people will want America to become France. We're not a European social democracy. We're the United States, and conservatives love America for what America is and always has been. They, liberals love America for what they want it to be, and most Americans don't want that vision, so the left just tries to bully their way into getting power and implementing their vision. So you, as a Hebrew alpha male, why do you think Jews are so liberal? Well, there's a medical procedure, not just your <laughs> Jewish liberalism, but all liberalism. It's called cranial gluteal extraction surgery. You separate the head from the hide. It leaves physical and emotional scars. Jewish people by nature, though, are always taught to empathize with the little guy. And the problem is, is that if a Palestinian suicide bomber has, like, dynamite strapped to their waist, they're the bad guy. Drug companies like Merck and Bristol-Myers putting out new drugs that save all of our lives, those are the good guys. So the big guy sometimes is the good guy, but Jews are reflexively liberal because of their history of being downtrodden. And this is actually pathologically nuts. Jewish people have always said in the liberal community, they hate people who love them, love people who hate them. They're actually like battered housewives, except battered housewives really are innocent victims. So how do you get liberals, Eric, to argue politics without getting in the gutter? You know what? I don't even deal with the far left. I deal with the center left. The far left, I use them as a tool to try to amuse the people in the center and get those people over to the right. The far left are never going to stop hating, but center-left people who are reasonable, I just try to show them that there's nothing racist, bigoted, sexist, or homophobe about wanting to cut taxes and kill terrorists, and that the people at the IRS processing those returns, they don't know the racial or ethnic composition of the person receiving the refund. <laughs> So with your determination, with your strategy, how are you going to teach conservatives to fight back against liberal bullies? The only solution to dealing with bullies is force. Now, if that force is brought on by violence, such as jihadists, then the response should be violence predator drones, waterboarding, etc. But when the violence directed at you is only verbal, you stick with verbal. So what I would say the conservatives need to do is stop the conversation dead in its tracks the minute the liberal goes off the track. For instance, when somebody says, how in good conscience can you, and you immediately stop them and say, look, if you want to ask me why I voted for George W. Bush or why I like Sarah Palin or why I support tax cuts, we can have the conversation. But the minute you say how in good conscience you are questioning what is in my heart. You never have the right to question what is in my heart. My intentions are just as noble and decent as yours. I'm not going to assume that liberals deliberately want to destroy this country, so they have no moral right 
to question what is in my heart. So I force liberals to ask decent, respectful questions by teaching conservatives what the bullying code words are and not even letting the liberals utter those words. Because name-calling is standard fare, isn't it? Absolutely, and it is destructive and it is poisonous for our society. Liberals like to use the word draconian, extremist. Those words are just simply anybody who doesn't agree with them. And whenever a liberal says, let's come together, let's be bipartisan, what that liberal is really telling the conservative is, shut up and agree with me. And conservatives need to explain to liberals that there cannot be a conversation until the conservative voice is given an equal moral plane. Now, this isn't your first book. Well, ideological bigotry came first, then I did ideological violency and ideological idiocy. But ideological bigotry started it off because I, like many other conservatives, was the victim of it, and I decided that we need to fight back because if we fight back against liberal bullies, there'll be a better country, and liberals and conservatives will benefit. How do you think we can get more young people involved, uh, you know, really involved as conservatives, even as Republicans, though sometimes I wonder about Republicans being conservative? The fact is, is that young people by nature are not born into this world liberal hippies. Young boys are future neocons. They play with G.I. Joes. They watch movies like Rocky and The Expendables and Rambo. Okay, but what happens to these young boys is that any time a young boy starts spouting idiocy, like the wetlands or global warming, chlorofluorocarbons, any leftist nonsense, it's because there's a young girl that he's trying to get a date with. That's it. <laughs> so what we need to do is get to the young girls because the boys will – they're easy. They always do what the girls tell them to do. And that does not change as we get older. Good point. So we need to explain to these girls, and some of them are dumb as a bag of rocks because they're the daughters of people who bought pet rocks in the 1970s. <laughs> some of these girls, we need to show them that on 9-11, the terrorists murdered thousands and thousands of trees. They also butchered bunny rabbits. So once we show them the dead flora and fauna, okay, now we've got the environmental activists and the animal rights activists on our side. Also, we could show them that rocket launchers are bad for the environment. If terrorists want to blow themselves up, at least use a good carbon footprint, you know, use a Chevy Volt. It explodes and somebody needs to be buying them. And then the last thing we need to do is there's a great social group called Republican Party Animals. Uh, it's like Sodom and Gomorrah with tax cuts because, <laughs> you know, boys, again, if you show them fun, they will be there. But we can't be preachy and moralistic. Otherwise, we'll just push them to the left. Well, you're pretty tough on Islam. That's a... Uh incorrect, politically incorrect in today's world. Uh, tell us about your feelings about radical Islam. I know how to separate radical Islam from moderate Islam. Moderate Islam, which is a billion people for the most part, is a beautiful religion. But in a billion people, you're going to have thousands and thousands of basket cases. Radical Islamists, the problem is this. If I see, I'm Jewish, if I see a Christian person eating a bacon cheeseburger, I do nothing. 
because there's no violation. There's nothing that prevents Christians from eating pork products. I tell them, enjoy the bacon cheeseburger. The problem with radical Islam is that they want to subject Jews and Christians to being part of the global caliphate. Now, since they use bombs and planes into towers to get their points across, the only solution is to obliterate them from the ends of the earth. And I don't care whether the president is a Republican or a Democrat. The Democratic Party has been a disaster for four decades because they will not tell us what they're going to do to keep us safe. They called the Fort Hood shooter workplace violence. It was radical Islam, and the left won't even use those words. One of the only honest leftists in this entire world, rest his soul, was Christopher Hitchens, because he was the only one on the left that did not make excuses for the Islamists. What you do is what the neocons want to do. You go in there, you obliterate everything, you don't worry about collateral damage, because when you're at war, the only way to end a war is to win. And then you plant in a flag in the ground and say, God bless the USA, yay us, we're searching and delivering freedom. Why is it so important to use humor to defeat the left? You either laugh or you cry. And the fact is, is that we all need to lighten up. I'm as passionate about politics as anybody, but the fact of the matter is, is that it's so much fun making fun of the left because they think they have a monopoly on humor. There's tons of things we can say about the left, whether it's the Pelosa Raptor, where it's Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who's the wife of Sergeant Schultz, who knows nothing <laughs> from Hogan's Heroes. They had a child that became MSNBC's Ed Schultz. You know, there's Barack Obama, whose head is so disproportioned, we should rename the presidential plane Air Force One. I mean, this is a man, I don't want to say Barack Obama is a snob, but I look at him and I think, picture what would happen if Jacques Chirac and John Kerry had a baby. But then I realize that's going too far because it's one thing to say somebody's half black, but to say they're half French is unforgivable. Obama's not French. We need to make fun of the left because they are so pompous and so full of themselves that they need to be hoisted on their own petard, and humor is a powerful weapon to do it. And you see, you still see supply-side tax cuts will always be a good policy. It worked when John F. Kennedy did it. It worked when Ronald Reagan did it. It worked when George W. Bush did it. People love to complain about the Bush economy. The Bush economy was fantastic. They just said, oh, but in 2008, we had a crash. Well, yeah, in the Clinton economy, we had a crash in 2000. Stock market dropped by 90%. It's called the business cycle. It is never going to go away. But tax cuts actually work. When you raise people's taxes, they leave. People are fleeing California. The best hope now for California is that the earthquake makes us part of Russia. And, you know, living under Vladimir Putin will be less oppressive than living under Nancy Pelosi because at least Putin can keep the streets clean. You know, the best job creator for Texas is not Rick Perry. It's California Governor Jerry Brown. <laughs> Cut taxes, kill terrorists, and you will have a better world. A lot of talk today about gun control. What do you think? I think that if we really want to reduce the supply of illegal guns in America, then tell Attorney General Eric Holder to stop gun running. 
how can we have gun control legislation when the top law enforcement officer is up to his eyeballs in a fast and furious scandal? Mexican children are dead because of Eric Holder's fast and furious program. And whether or not Barack Obama ordered the program, we need Eric Holder to tell the truth. Other things that we can do, public schools are where children go to die. Shut them down, okay? They have failed. Homeschool your kids, private schools, charter schools. The only reason Newtown, Connecticut gets attention is because of the horrific way that the children were killed. But every single day, children are being killed on the way to school, whether it's due to drugs, whether it's due to guns, whether it's due to bullying. Our public schools are laboratories of death. Just shut them down. They don't work. Get the federal government out of the schools. Leave law-abiding gun owners alone. And anybody that thinks we should have a national gun registry, try advocating for a national abortion registry or a national smokers registry or a national hamburgers registry (laughs) and see how people will stand up. And the National Organization for Women and NARAL and Planned Parenthood, if they want to have an ounce of integrity, and I'm not a culture warrior, they should immediately stand up for the National Rifle Association because either everybody is free or we're all in jail. So in 2014, we don't have much time left. What do you see? I see Barack Obama getting his hide kicked the same way as in 2010 because Obama is not going to be on the ballot. A lot of his base is not going to turn out, and he is absolutely enraged conservatives. So they will turn out because right now, this gun control legislation is his Obamacare. So 2014, I normally don't go up to octogenarians and take their stuff, but we're going to rip that gavel out of Harry Reid's cold arthritic hands. (laughs) Well, it sounds like a plan. I think all conservatives would agree with you totally, Eric. Eric, a.k.a. the Tiger Express, Ideological Bigotry. Tell us how to get your book. Sure, and my real name is Eric Golub, G-O-L-U-B, in case anybody wants to send me hate mail or death threats. (laughs) I publish my column every day at the Washington Times Communities, or you can go to my site, the Tiger Express, www.tyg, quadruple R, T-Y-G, R-R-R-R, express.com, or send me mail at the Washington Times Communities. My column is the Tiger Express. Contact me, and I will send you signed, autographed copies of ideological bigotry, ideological violence, and ideological idiocy, and read my Tiger Express column at the Washington Times Communities. Thank you, Eric, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. If I'm still allowed to say in America, sir, God bless. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. 
Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune into Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, I've Got Some Lovin' to Do, The Diaries of a Roaring Twenties Teen, 1925-1926. through 1926. The first volume of this diary series, and the author is Julia Park Tracy. Hello, Julia. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, welcome to iUniverse Radio. Great to have you with us. Let me read a couple things you've written about your books to set the stage. Uh, this is your, your aunt that you received her diaries. Let's see, this is Doris Bailey, is that her name? Yes. Doris, Doris Bailey. Doris Bailey, yes. And you say this, uh, True Life Diary of My Great Aunt Doris Bailey, who was a teen in the flapper era, and I inherited her diaries, and of course reading them, fell in love with Doris, and Doris was a prolific writer. She just, just you've got some more coming. Well, before we get into the details, though, let's find out about you, Julia, your background, and and why you've decided to do this. Um, excellent. Well, uh, I am um, a journalist by trade, and I've also uh, written a novel, and I've written poetry for years. So. Um, I have my bachelor's in journalism and my master's in English and have been working in newspaper and magazine for about 30 years. So um, I have the writing chops behind me and uh, have also done PR and I've done um, scholarly writing. I'm a member of the Jane Austen Society. So I've done all different kinds of writing and it was just... Um, just the right person for these diaries to come to in my family. Everyone else has uh, other kinds of jobs that, that don't involve a lot of writing. So um, I just happened to be the right person when these landed in my lap. So <laughs> that's my background. So is Doris that different from teens of today? Or was that a whole different kind of a, well, it was a different era, that's for sure. But, but uh, she sounds like a typical teenager. She is in many, many ways. Um, it's funny because you think today that teens are so different because they've got their iPads and their iPhones and they're plugged into their, you know, their little white earbuds all the time. And um, you think that they're, they're so different than, oh, when we were kids, we did this or that. But 
the thought process is the same, and Doris is um, something that's different about her. She's very articulate about writing it down in her diary. She doesn't just say, you know, went to the store, went home. She is very articulate and paints a scene and tells exactly what happened. So you really get a sense um, of what it was like uh, on a certain day or time with her. Um, she's very much in love with the technology of her day. She loves the telephone. It's a different kind of telephone than we have now, but oh boy, she loves the telephone. And she loves music, and they're always singing with their friends and playing music on the Victrola. And um, someone will come along with a ukulele, and that was a, 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 a form of music that you could take from place to place, just like an iPod, and sing all the popular songs. So it's actually not that different in, in some ways. Um, in other ways, we think of now as, um, again, like I said, wow, kids are so different today. They're exposed to so much. But, uh, you know, things that we're not exposed to are scarlet fever and the plague, you know, and uh, um, smallpox, for example. There was a smallpox scare in Portland um, in about the 1920s, and so Doris thought she might have been exposed. She also had diphtheria. So there's things that she was exposed to that we are certainly not um, as far as disease and as far as, you know, blatant racism. We don't see the same, you know, kind of racism in the, in general knowledge uh, of the newspaper or the, or the radio or what have you. We don't see the same way that it was, and there's a lot more, um, I think people are more enlightened in, in a general sense today. So there are some differences about her world and and about her particularly, but in many ways very much the same. And she, would you call her uh, a feminist? I would say she's a she's a proto-feminist. She's uh, kind of ahead of the curve as far as, you know, not wanting to be told what to do, which is also very typically teenager. But um, she, the the women had gotten the right to vote just a few years before she started writing these diaries. Um, she was interested in finding a job, so she wasn't just. Um, uh, interested in, in snagging a man and getting married and what have you. Although she did write a lot about that, but she, she wanted to be a writer. She wanted to be a, an artiste and, um, go out and taste the world and travel and, and see things and meet people. So, um, I would say she was a feminist also as far as really expressing herself and not just doing what she was told. Uh, there are entries in the diaries where the doctor um, calls her Doris, and it's at the end. By the end of the visit with the doctor, she ta- she calls him by his first name, and she says, "Why shouldn't I call him by his first name? He called me Doris the whole time." <laughs> so <laughs> she gets a little antsy about that. <laughs> and a lot of photographs. Yes, uh, the photographs were um, taken. Most of them were taken by my grandfather, who was her elder brother. And, um, you know, he was, uh, loved his camera. He had a, a brownie box camera and took tons and tons of photos. For me, the disappointment is that he had gone off to college and then went off to get married right at the time when Doris is really coming into flower in these diaries. So I have a ton of photos of young Doris. And I have uh, photos um, of the family and the neighborhood and the house and the whatever. But not a lot of doors because he was gone at the time, like I say. So um, so I'm having to kind of supplement and fill in some of those photos by pictures of other things. Uh, but I don't have that many of her at that era. So that's a little disappointing. But what are you going to do? I'm happy to have them. So I don't want to lick <laughs> a gift horse in the mouth. Did she grow up in a household, you know, kind of prim and proper, conservative? 
Oh, absolutely. Her parents were from Alabama, so they were southern, uh, a southern lady and gentleman. And um, he was uh, an architect, so they definitely had aspirations of, you know, upper society and uh, absolutely prim and proper. And yet she was a daddy's girl, so if there was something that she wanted, her mother said pretty much she just had to bat her eyelashes at her father and she'd get it. Um, and you know what's kind of funny? Pretty much every photo you see of her, she's holding a kitten or a puppy. So <laughs> that gives you an idea. Prim and proper. She was a sassy girl. Uh, I would say she was. Uh, she definitely had some elements of the uh, the Southern Belle in her, even though she was born and raised in Portland and you know lived on the West Coast her whole life. And from her diary, she's kind of a rebellious. Uh, you know that she appears one way, but she's sneaking out of the house. Oh, she's sassy. My goodness, is she sassy. <laughs> yeah, when when Daddy says no, sometimes she just gets so angry, and uh, and she'll do it anyway. Daddy said I couldn't take the car, but I took it anyway. And <laughs> uh, or she'll say, Daddy said I had to come in, so she goes out the window and is out on the balcony, or she shimmies down the, the side of the house to go out and talk to some, some passing uh, boys from school, so... Um, she doesn't like to be told no. And you know what? She was like that her entire life. She lived to be 101. And um, you know that poem, Do Not Go Gently Into That Good Night? That was Doris. She did not go gently. She lived 101 full years, every last minute. So um, that was kind of how she was her entire life. And like a lot of diaries, especially with young girls, pretty much tells everything. And uh, not that it's uh, R-rated, but it's PG at least. It's definitely PG. Um, it's it's interesting to read because she uh, she's very truthful. She doesn't hold back. Although I, you know, it's colored by her own perspective. Of course, she can be very naive or very um, youthful in her perspective. Of course, but yeah, she's kissing and she's uh, sneaking a little bit of whiskey and um, she doesn't mind kissing one or two boys in a night and two or three more the next night. <laughs> she doesn't have a problem with that. And, you know, the 1920s were like that. So um, looking back and uh, seeing them as a prim and proper time, the 1920s were really not. They were um, kind of like the 60s in some ways. They were very much about finding finding love and romance and letting go of the, kicking the traces off the, um, the Victorian era and the Edwardians and, you know, pulling up your skirts and... Uh, showing off your bare skin of your arms and your neck and all kinds of things um, changed. It was definitely an era of change. And she reflects that, I think, by by being so free-spirited. And also just telling it like it is about how she gets her heart broken. Oh, yeah. She does get her heart broken. <laughs> <laughs> she gets her heart broken mm, once or twice a week. Once or twice <laughs> a week. like. Yes, and of course her, you know, her schemes and her dreams. What were some of her dreams? Oh, well, she wanted to be a writer. She also had, um, uh, she fantasized a lot about her kind of her white knight uh, coming to, um, to sweep her off her feet. Uh, her gallant, uh, gallant cowboy, um, her dream man. So she had a lot of dreams about that. But she definitely wanted to write, and she does take off on flights of fancy in her diaries uh, about sailing or about horseback riding or about the moonlight in the desert um, or her perfect evening with the man uh, of her dreams 
or a cottage by the seashore. So she does uh, write very picturesque vignettes of these things, and um, and it's very charming to read. So she, as you call her, catty, snarky, feisty, and it's hilarious to read. It is. She's, you know, that's the funny thing is, I I knew her my whole life. I knew her for almost fifty years before, you know, when she passed away, and. She was, I always thought her amusing, but not so much a knee slapper because she was so feisty. When she's younger, she's so um, ingenuous in some ways. She just says these things in her diaries. And I was laughing out loud every time, you know, every page. And uh, I started posting things on Facebook because I thought they were so funny. And my friends were laughing and saying, this is hilarious. What is this? And that's actually how I ended up making her own Facebook page and her own Twitter feed. And then the book was born really kind of out of popular demand because she was so funny and people were laughing at her um, charming expressions and her snappy little comebacks. It's pretty funny to read. What do you think about keeping a diary? Oh, you know... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> don't leave a record don't <laughs> you don't want someone to read it um, I would say it's not real useful to leave a diary if you're just going to record the weather and how much you weighed or you know something like that my grandfather kept diaries in these very small kind of two by three inch little tiny books and he it's just it's got all these abbreviations and no real substance to it as far as, um, I guess scientifically it's useful to know what the temperature was, you know, that day in 1908, but it doesn't have the appeal of um, full-out scenes and dialogue and uh, what you were wearing and all that, that um, the way Doris explains it. So, uh, and you know, for myself, I did keep journals for years, but when you look back at them, pretty much all they said was, woe is me, will I ever be a writer, life sucks. You know, I mean, that's pretty much <laughs> I could sum up about 10 diaries in, in three <laughs> sentences. So I made them go away. I, did, I disappeared my diaries at one point because I thought, ugh, I just wouldn't want my kids to have to read that. So uh, I'm of mixed feelings. Yes, they're great if they're somebody else's. Mine, yeah, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> so... Well, it sounds like she may have changed her mind because she stopped writing her diaries when she got married. She stopped writing when she got married, and she started up again after her husband died. That was a 40-year silence. Hmm. Now, actually, what I should say is I don't have the diaries for when she's married. Maybe she did keep them. Maybe she also disappeared those diaries. I don't know that, but Mm -hmm. she didn't have children, or they didn't have children together, and um, I think they were... So much bonded to each other. They talked so much that she didn't really need the outlet. That's kind of where I am right now. At mm-hmm. first, I thought, well, she must have burned them. They must have been full of all kinds of stuff about my uncle or what have you. But mm, no, I think that they were just so closely bonded that, that, you know, she didn't need the other outlet. And after he died, she was so sad and it took her a while to get up and run in again. And then she became an activist again and got did all kinds of fun stuff for the next 25 years of her life. So so we've got this first in a series, which is about the 20s, and then what are the other ones coming out? What will they be focused on? So the first one is 1925 and 26. The second one, which is due out this September, also coming from iUniverse, 
um, is called Reaching for the Moon, and it's the years of 27 to 29, and uh, you start to see the um, the effects of the world, the financial crash of October 29, definitely hurts their family a lot. Her father was, as I said, an architect and in real estate venture, so he was hit terribly hard, and that definitely affected the family. So the upcoming book is more of the 20s. Then we start the 1930s, and Doris was uh, kind of a debutante. She went off to college, and so the third volume, which is also underway, is um, called The Sweetheart of Sigma Chi. These are all named for popular songs of the time. And then she went to Reed College. I've got a book uh, uh, settled um, coming about the Reed years, which is 1935 to 38. She went to San Francisco uh, and was in San Francisco in World War II, so there's one or two volumes there, and San Francisco in the 1940s was a pretty fabulous place, so there was all kinds of stuff going on. She worked at the World Fair in 1939 in San Francisco and then got involved with the Red Cross during World War II. So there's some really rich and um, evocative writing from her in those years um, uh, about, you know, Pearl Harbor and what's happening in Germany and I mean really really wonderful what I'm what I'm writing now in the 1920s from Doris what I'm uh, transcribing is very charming and youthful is much darker and and um, much more mature and interesting when she gets later into the 30s and then into the 40s so so hang with it there's a lot more coming and it's really a lot lovely more coming and more photographs too Yes, there are there are definitely more photographs. Again, I don't have a huge number of Doris uh, mm-hmm. herself, but of the things that she's talking about and the places she's been to really give a glimpse back at it. I think there um, there's a wealth of material out there, and if I get it in the right order, I think it should definitely enhance the diaries so you can see what she's talking about. We've been listening to Julia Park Tracy. She's the author of her new book, I've got some loving to do. The diaries of a roaring 20s teen, 1925 through 1926. Julia, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can get it through the iUniverse.com bookstore. You can get it at Amazon.com. You can go to your local independent bookstore and ask them to order it for you. They can get it through Ingram. Um, you can get it in hardback, paperback, or ebook. And I would love it if you'd go to the Facebook page for The Doris Diaries or the Twitter feed of at The Doris Diaries and follow along. As I'm transcribing, I'm posting four to six or seven uh, posts every day from diaries as I transcribe. So you get to hear more of the story. Well, thank you, Julia, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much for having me. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.